Welcome to Engage Your World, the podcast of Engage 360 Ministries. We're continuing on in our series, looking at all of the evangelistic encounters in the book of Acts and applying our gospel acronym. That's the core of our training process. With me today is Joshua Erlin, our other training director, church outreach, and college ministry specialist. Thanks for joining me, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me. We've had a little bit of a gap here, but we're back on track doing these recordings and continuing on through Acts. And today we're looking at the second half of Acts 8. Last episode, we covered Simon the Magician, and now we're going to discuss the interaction of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a little bit of a shorter section of text and maybe a little less familiar to some people, so I'll go ahead and read this one all the way through, and then we'll jump into our discussion. Acts 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes to Jerusalem, to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Quite an interesting passage here. We were talking just a little bit before we started here, and the way we've chosen to go about this series, just if you're jumping in for the first time, this is not meant to be a rigorous, very in-depth study of each scripture, but more of looking at kind of an overview, looking at the overall approach framework, what strategies are used, what are some just interesting observations in the text, and you being able to listen along, read along, consider for yourself what jumps out, but we're really looking at that evangelistic strategy. What can we learn from it? How do we apply it today? We're not meaning this to be a a super in-depth study. And as part of that, we were just kind of talking before things we had noticed as we reviewed. And this is definitely an interesting one. I, I couldn't remember another interaction in the New Testament where there's this sort of at the end where Philip's just taken away, Josh. I don't think you had, you didn't remember anything either, right? No, I think this is unique. So yeah, we have this very interesting, obviously, 
one of the things before we kind of consider the particulars, one of the things that stood out to me about this passage as a whole is that element of the sovereignty of God in these things and obviously his knowledge of what is and and for us what we would call future, what will be, but God knows what is. And the way that it plays out here where Philip is sent and obviously God has this plan in place. He knows what's happening and Philip's just his servant, his obedient ambassador, his servant, and dutifully following through on what's requested of him. But it is pretty fascinating the way it shows God's sovereignty in bringing someone the gospel who seems to be seeking, uh, at least in some level. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think this is a, a beautiful example of the type of thing that we are that we want to be praying for, <laughs> that we want to be asking God for these types of appointments. God had obviously been been at work in the the heart of this this Ethiopian, and God was sending Philip to him to bring him the gospel. And so we, you know, we we say that. You know, salvation is of the Lord. God has to be the one to change people. It's, it's not even, you know, there's no way for us to preach the gospel well enough to save somebody. On our own. God has to save people. And it's, he saves them through the gospel, but it's got to be the power of God. It's got to be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be, you know, the, the transforming work, like Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you know, you must be born again. Well, how, how does that work? Well, it's something that God does. Right. That, you know, the wind blows, you don't know where it's coming from. You, you don't know how this works, but God does it. And, <laughs> you know, and so I just think, what a great reminder that, A, salvation is of the Lord, that he is the the one that's initiating all of this, and he's the one that brings people to himself. And these are the types of things that I think we can ask for, that you know, it's, I mean, I don't think God's going to transport us from Azotus typically um, <laughs> right. or to Azotus later. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that that God is at work in people's hearts. Right. And, you know, hey, how cool would that be for us to be asking for for God to use us, to send us to that one who's thirsty, that right. one who's um, seeking. Seeking. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. it's this interesting balance. I, I guess this actually goes into our G, gauge your audience. So thinking about who is this, who is the audience here? Well, this this is an Ethiopian, but he's not just your typical Ethiopian, it doesn't seem, because he's already worshiping the one true God. He's come to Israel to worship. Now, it doesn't tell us that he didn't have any other gods. He didn't do any other form of worship. So maybe we can't go that far, but he... He's putting in some pretty serious effort to go to Jerusalem and worship. So that seems to tell us something. And there's this balance, and without descending into a full discussion of Calvinism and Arminianism and sovereignty and responsibility and all of that, I think just looking at what the Bible does say, there's something to a person seeking. Clearly, seeking 
unto meriting salvation is not possible. That seems to be very clear from Scripture. But there's a lot of examples where there's something that a person is doing, even if very imperfectly, even if very, in some ways, ignorantly, there's something where they're responding to what God has revealed in creation, in his word, and they're responding to that. You know, whether it's, uh, you think of Paul's sermon in Acts 17, that God has determined the allotted times and boundaries of their existence, that they should seek for God and even find him. There's so many uh, references in the Old Testament to, especially when the people are sent into captivity, but they will seek God and then he will respond. And, you know, it's not this conditional where you do enough and then God will save you because, you know, you earned it. But there's something in that response and that seeking. And and I've seen this, I'm sure, Josh, you've had a, a ton of conversations with people, whether it's, uh, you know, we do a lot on campus. Those who've listened a lot, we've probably shared some stories of, of interactions we've had on campus. Just so easy to get into conversations. And college students are often very open to talking. But I've had similar conversations with adults. And you, know, you meet people who really are wrestling. They're really seeking, even if imperfectly, even if they're very confused and there's something there. And, you know, when you find that situation where it seems like you're just custom fit to reach this person where they are and, and what they're wrestling with, and it's so encouraging to see that and, uh, you know, really neat when you when you have those opportunities and, and God allows you to be a part of it. And obviously we think it is God who's doing the saving, but there's something in the person seeking and the overwhelming witness of what I see in the apostles. There's something in the sharing. It's not irrelevant. The apostles went through way too much and sacrificed way too much to think their efforts were borderline irrelevant and it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was thinking of parables that Jesus told. It seems like they're told a couple of different ways. But the parable of the talents, I think, is about... Uh, responding to revelation, to mm. truth, you know, that how you respond with what determines doing. what more God gives. Yeah. And if you don't respond or if you hide or bury in the sand what you do have, even what you think you have will be taken from you. Right. And what's even telling us after one of the times that it's recorded, Jesus says, you know, be careful how you listen mm. or be careful how you hear or something like that. Wow. But think about uh, Cornelius. You know, yeah. here was a Gentile, a Roman centurion, and he was known as being a God-fearing man. He gave alms to the to the Jewish nation. Right. You know, his his heart was was in a particular direction. Right. And you know that didn't happen by accident. I'm sure that didn't happen by accident. That, right. You know that God had been initiating things for him prior to that. And as as Cornelius responded to those things, God uh, God brought him the gospel. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, when people respond to the light they have, then God is more apt to give them more light. Now, I think that there's also times when more light can be given, but it can end up being a condemnation. Yeah, a judgment for, in a sense. Yeah, a judgment for people. Right. Like Jesus talks about, you know, hey, if the if the miracles performed in Capernaum had been performed in Sodom, it'd still be here. Yeah, they'd be yeah, repent yeah. in sackcloth and ashes, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And so there is definitely, I mean, we can't minimize that, that God really is calling all men everywhere to repent. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and all our that's a, it's a real call. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I know we've talked before about, and you and I, whether it's people we've known or stories we've read there, there's these amazing miraculous accounts, even today of God doing something, maybe not necessarily zipping someone away to a Zoda afterwards, but uh, right. I've heard I've heard enough stories of whether it's somebody having a dream or a vision or Jesus appearing to them or them having a vision of a person unlike anyone they'd ever seen before and then suddenly they see that person a week later and that person's coming to share the gospel with their group or wherever I, I've just heard way too many stories of along that line for them to all be making it up and exaggerating. Uh, cause it's, it's numerous. Uh, and so, you know, whether it's that, uh, you know, God miraculously does it or there's, uh, it's just the course of, of how lives unfold at times, but, uh, he certainly can. And in circumstances that it would seem it's impossible for somebody to hear the gospel that, that they have. And so, you know, this is maybe our, our new Testament example of that. And, and maybe there are ways we see that exemplified or repeating today. I know a story of a guy who, uh, was a militant in uh, kind of a, I think part of a paramilitary group in Southeast Asia in a jungle. And just to keep it really short, he had really been suppressing this uh, missionary group that was in his area and they would shoot his, his, his little militia group would, would shoot at them whenever they would come and try to proselytize or whenever they'd come try to proselytize a village and um, share the gospel with a village near them. And and he would start screaming. He learned what they were teaching, and he would scream, "Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God." And you know, we're our own gods. And and uh, and the the last time this had happened, the leader of the compound, the leader of the missions group, had said, "You know, well, when you need help, call on Jesus." As he's running away, and this guy's shooting him, and I'm hearing the guy, the the Southeast Asian, uh, tell me this story. Uh, in America, he had ended <laughs> up becoming a missionary. So how he got there, uh, he after this incident where this guy had yelled, you know, when you need help, call on Jesus. Uh, well, he wakes up one night in an absolute panic and sweat and, and feels like he's under judgment and is in absolute fear. And he goes outside and fire comes down from the sky and in a field of, of something like wheat on a hillside, burns the message, Jesus is God. <laughs> And this this guy had been shooting at all these missionaries, saying Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God. We're our own gods. There, you know, your your God is false. And so he sees Jesus is God, and the vision goes away, but the sense of judgment and doom increases. And so this guy, in the middle of the night through the jungle, starts running, screaming, "Jesus, help me! Jesus, help me!" And runs to the missions compound, pounds on the door trying to let them in the outer gate and and some of the people wake up but they know who this guy is and then he shoots at them so with his ak-47 so they don't want to let him in the compound leader convinces them no he seems sincere because he's in a panic and let me in how do i how do i how do i have you know i need jesus to protect me how do i have him you know and so they end up walking him through the gospel and 
all of that. And he never leaves the compound. He, he's done. He goes, he abandons his little military, paramilitary group and uh, they disciple him. And he eventually becomes a missionary traveling around teaching people the gospel. And it's just this amazing story. Uh, but it was actually out of sort of this defiance of God and this feeling of of judgment that God brought, and he, he redeemed him through it. So you can't say the guy was worthy of it or that he did anything to merit it, but it's this miraculous right. story where he did respond, right. though, and he, hey, he knew when he was in trouble, call on Jesus, and he did. And right. so, you know, I've just heard enough stories along those lines personally or from others that some of it has to be true, and and it certainly shows that God is capable for those that respond or that He chooses for whatever reason. Uh, so it's pretty neat to see. Yeah. So one of the things that reminds me of is there is a message that is printed on the hillsides, mm. but just not in fire like this guy saw in his vision. The knowledge of God is imprinted on creation yes and it speaks a message Mm. to people and i think most often it ends up being a message of condemnation because people suppress the truth and unrighteousness and you know but there but this is this seems to me to be god's pattern that he is reaching that he is holding his hands out to an obstinate people you know why will you die you know Mm. why why will you continue? Why will you persist? Repent and find mercy. Now, I see that happening here where God is ratcheting up this testimony. Okay, so Jesus has died, but why is Isaiah being read by this Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from a Passover celebration? Hmm. Now, it seems to me this was probably what everybody was talking about. Everybody's wondering about, well, okay, all these things that happened. You know, Isaiah 53 says this. (laughs) I mean, they wouldn't have said Isaiah 53, but, you know, he was led like a sheep to slaughter. I mean, maybe he had heard these Christians saying it was Jesus. Jesus was led like a sheep to slaughter. Hmm. And like a lamb before a seer is dumb. You know, it's striking to me. And I think that this was on the minds of the people at the Passover that saw these things, that they're wondering and they're talking about this. I think that's probably the impetus for why like, he's yeah. However you know, far why he's got Isaiah open right now, right? However know. far after, yeah, this is those events had to certainly be in the minds of people and. You know, it goes back to one of the things that we talk about in our trainings, always emphasizing Psalm 22, and that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not talking about being separated from the Father and, and feeling like he's cut off. He's he's saying, open your Bibles to Psalm 22. <laughs> right. And in the Psalm there, you know, they there had to be some people whose worlds are getting rocked when they see this man who they thought was the Messiah and now they think is not because he's being killed and he can't conquer the Romans if he's getting killed by the Romans. And so, but then they see his body open and his bones exposed and they see his hands and his feet pierced and they see the soldiers casting lots over his garments. 
there had to be at least some people I would imagine that were thinking, wait a second, how does this all fit together? And so, you know, obviously some believed fairly shortly after some, some believed, you know, very shortly after, but even Pentecost had come and now you add a bunch more. And, and for a lot of the Jews, the people who had had this idea of the Messiah, it was just explaining, yes, the Messiah actually had to suffer and die. It wasn't a loss. It was actually the victory. They had too low of a view. It wasn't that Jesus missed, he fell too far short. It's that he went so far beyond that they missed it. And so it's this interesting thing. So it certainly probably would have been in the discussions in the minds of people, some who believed and some who are maybe still wrestling. But how does this fit? And yeah, I, you know, I don't know enough to know, Josh, neither you or I are, are, you know, these uh, uh, super uh, PhD New Testament scholars immersed in that all the time. But, uh, you know, we've, we've read a fair amount and we know people are, but I don't know how much of a wrestling there was by, uh, you know, a wider range of Jews of did they get these interpretations of these prophecies mm-hmm. wrong. And obviously we know this is what Paul and Peter and others were doing when they would go into the synagogues and they would reason with the Jews from the scriptures as they were showing that the Messiah have to suffer and die. That's clear from the text. We know that was the process. Uh, maybe even Apollos, right? These these various, that's what they were doing. So we know that's a process that's at least going on. So perhaps you're right. And and this Ethiopian eunuch had come to worship and and then he starts hearing this buzz. So maybe he picks up one of these scrolls and is trying to wrestle through it and saying, how does this make sense? Right. You alluded to, a, I think, a, an important thing to remember that, so this is after Pentecost, um, but this is probably within just a few months, I would think. I think Pentecost so. is what, 40, 50 days, 50 days right. from uh, the Passover. And, uh, um, you know, and then Philip is, I mean, it seems he's pretty early this guy on. on his way back. Right, right. Pretty early on in the So I assume that he was there for the, for the Pentecost celebration. I think it said Passover before, but it's at least Pentecost is my guess that he was there for. Uh, and maybe he was there for the whole celebration, but um, uh, yeah, I just I, I can't help but think that people were talking, and I'm, I'm sure that the Christians were talking about it. Right. Um, yeah. You, know, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, sometimes people will talk about like you know what about Christianity before you know before there was a Bible. Right. Well, there never was. <laughs> a Christianity before there was a Bible, you know, the, the early believers in the first century during the time of the apostles, you know, they, they had the apostles teachings right. and as soon as the letters were written, they had those, but they had, they had the old Testament. They had the scriptures that were now confirmed in right. Jesus. Prophecies fulfilled. And they had yep. the apostles teaching at least some things we know they were teaching from the very beginning. So certainly there was uh, there was things that were going around. There was this core that emerged. Uh, you know, one of the other things that we've picked up from scholars we've read is, and that we cover in our training, is First Corinthians fifteen, as kind of this core summary of the the core gospel message of uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And and you have this early uh, creed 
as uh, scholars have found, that's likely within a few years of the crucifixion, and you have this creed affirming these core tenets of, of the Christian faith with the resurrection as the foundation for that. And so, so you definitely have uh, this early early form of uh, teaching that's that's going through out uh, the church and and as it, even at its early founding and and it's just building on it's not in rebellion against um, the Jewish scriptures it's not in a it's not a rejection of it's a fulfillment it's a messianic fulfillment of Judaism it's it's not a new thing completely separated and I fear sometimes we we sort of lose that and certainly it seems like at times in church history, when the church has become very anti, uh, you know, anti-Semitic, that perhaps that was sort of being neglected. But we can't we can't lose track of that. This is this is just an extension and a fulfillment of what was. It's not a rejection of it. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely. So as we consider the rest of this passage, kind of again applying our criteria, so we we know who our audience is. They, we see, I guess you could say, the offering common ground. It's a little forced in this one, but uh, the common ground is already there in that this is a, a man who's seeking God, who's been worshiping, who has a scroll right there. He has it with him. Philip uses that to do the shift to Christianity and the gospel. So he shows how this prophecy was actually fulfilled in Jesus and his death on the cross, and then walks him through the rest of the gospel. And now that's kind of left open-ended for us because it doesn't say what all. It just says that starting there, beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. And as we were briefly talking before, one of the things that jumped out to me is it seems like, maybe not absolutely guaranteed, but he must have said something about baptism uh, we know that Jesus gave the command to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it seems likely that was part of the gospel message that he told him because the eunuch responds and says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Right. But, you know, right. what other evidence he used, what other what other things in this passage were left to kind of speculate and wonder more than having the detail, but there's at least some basics there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's very much like, you know, Peter's Peter's preaching to the Jews at Pentecost. He's he's starting with here's here's somebody that believes the scriptures. So we're going to start there. It's not like Paul on Mars uh, Hill. You know, later we'll look at Mars Hill in Acts seventeen, but you know where where Paul is going to make some more philosophical arguments, right? Uh, to catch them on some common ground. But, uh, but yeah, he's already got somebody who believes a believes in God B believes in the scriptures. And, you know, he's, he's wanting to know not if the scriptures are true, but what they mean, right? Who are they referring to? Yeah. Is it, is it the prophet or is it somebody else? Right. But it is evidence, you know, uh, provide evidence is one of the steps uh, or one of the parts of the overall approach that we see in the New Testament so commonly repeated. And there was likely more that he shared, but at least this is a, it is an evidence that it's true and that Jesus fulfilling that. It's a fulfilled prophecy. So there's that evidential aspect that we always want to stress is not separated from evidence. It's not blindly believing. It's 
having evidence to go a certain distance and then by faith having to go further but it's it's along that same path or it's higher on that foundation that's been built by evidence by prophecy by historical proof by the resurrection as this miracle you know the other miracles jesus did it's it's not apart from evidence it's just more than purely evidence that's so important for people to to have front of mind especially as you're thinking about going out and sharing with others some are going to have this background where you just have to explain it and that's it but others are going to have questions and say yeah but why should i believe that's not a bad question that's i think jesus would be fine with that question in fact i think he would encourage it he wasn't averse to showing giving evidence that they should believe him when he said other things he was very content to do that that's i think a major aspect of his miracle ministry was to validate he was who he claimed to be but you had to believe certain things just by faith alone trusting if he can do this miracle that only god can do then he can perform this other thing that only god can do even if you have no way to know whether it's happened or not such as forgiving sin so and then we have uh, obviously the the next step well he baptizes him and then away philip goes on to preach the gospel in the rest of the towns between uh, Azotus and Caesarea. And this comes to an end, but very interesting little section here, reinforcing a lot of what we've already discussed. Uh, there's going to be an evidential aspect. People are going to have a different starting point. We, we start where they are and build that bridge towards Christianity, towards the gospel. And sometimes it's going to be a very short, easy one. And sometimes it's going to be longer and take time and we may be only one, you know, one brick in that in that path, but uh, we're just praying and asking God to give us opportunities. And what you and I both know, the people that we know that try to share regularly, you will have these stories at some point that end up like this, where you think that could not have been set up any better. I could not have been a better fit to reach that person. And it's like God just drops you in there, maybe not as miraculously seemingly, but it might feel pretty similar as far as how, how well suited it is and how easy it is and how well set up it is. And so uh, we would just encourage that, as you said earlier, Josh, just be praying that God would use you and, and would give you people who are seeking and, and, and that you are suited to reach. And, uh, you know, just do your best with whoever God brings across your path, but uh, you do it frequently enough, you're going to have these kinds of incidents and just wonder, wow, how did God set that up? Because it doesn't seem like it could have been any more perfect. Amen. Amen. I, uh, as you're reminded, uh, heard Doug Wilson say that his father was fond of saying that God meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. <laughs> and uh, um, and how true that is. Just, you know, we can't expect, and and we need to meet people where they are and not where they they ought to be, you know, and just thinking more about the, the offering of evidences, you know, and some feel like it, it, it undermines faith or it puts God on trial, you know, or something like that. There is a type of, uh, skepticism that is not virtuous, mm. the kind that Thomas was called out for, you know, by Jesus. You know, Thomas didn't see Jesus with, you know, with his with his own eyes at the first. But these men that he knew, 
and had walked with for three years. They had been right. saying they saw him. And, you know, so he had he had good reason to believe based on their testimony. Right. But he was being stubborn. Now, uh, Jesus met him where he was, not where he ought to be, and right. filled in the gap for him. But, uh, yeah, I think that, as you said, offering evidence is helpful to clear the way so people can see more clearly. But it's not the foundation. Right. You know, we really are calling people to trust Christ in God. Yeah, and not in our wisdom or eloquence. You know, our, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our cleverly devised syllogisms or right. something like that. You right. know, it's it's more like you've got permission to believe and you can't hide behind that. Right. Those are the two those are the two reasons why I think we should give evidence. To the one we say Yes, you can believe. You've got permission to believe. Uh, you're reason. not. You're not being stupid. Right. Um, you're not being. You're not. You're not losing your integrity by choosing something that you know isn't so. Right. Um, and to the others, uh, no, you can't hide behind that argument. You can't hide behind some alleged intellectual sophistication. In your unbelief, because that's just not, this is not true. In fact, I was, I was just talking to a former student from our college ministry. He was, uh, atheist, atheist agnostic, kind of bordering in there. Didn't think there was a God, probably was not, probably isn't a God. And, uh, he's been on a journey, but he and I reconnected recently and he was talking about marriage and dating and, you know, just what marriage is. And, and he brought up, he brought up evolution and the evolutionary benefits of the idea, the concept of marriage. And I just, I found myself being really kind of impatient. Like, and I said, I just, I just don't buy the magical thinking. Right. The, the amount of magic that has to go in to making that thing float. Hmm. I just, I don't think that's, that's not the rational position, hmm. but uh, that's another topic for another <laughs> yeah. podcast. Getting anyway, us in the hot water I, and we're I already probably running over here. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like that he left with a clear next step. Uh, we, we presume that Philip spoke about baptism yep. uh, because the, the eunuch knew the, that's what, the next natural that's what came step. next, and he was ready. Yeah. Hey, look, water. Yes. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Look forward to being with you again here soon. We're going to turn to Acts 9, and, and now we get to turn our focus to Paul and, and the shift that comes as he goes from suppressing the church and killing Christians to uh, becoming a leader of the church who's uh, under threat of being killed quite frequently, and and what a radical turnaround that is. So join us for that. Uh, Again, thank you for your time. We pray this will be a blessing for you, and be praying that God would give you opportunities to share, and uh, we'll see you next time on Engage Your World. Engage Your World exists to help you know, share, and grow in your faith. Thanks for tuning in.